are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of the Win-Win podcast, which is coming to us as everyone is hopefully going on vacation for the Christmas holidays and winding down. Even though we are all supposed to be recharging and unplugging from work during this time, as we are looking to the upcoming new year after the turmoil of 2020 and even 2021, there is no such thing as treating anything, but especially our careers as business as usual. That's why, outside of just chalking it up to the great resignation, I think we are all revisiting what the next chapter looks like for us, within our current roles or even future roles. Today's guest feels more timely than ever, and that is because she is both in the executive search recruiting space, specializing in the fields of innovation and technology, but also because she actually switched her career 16 years in this year, pivoting from the event management industry to executive search. Jill Dasher is now a managing director at Corsica Partners and is really bringing her years of experience to what it means to innovate across all areas of innovation, which I'm very excited to share with you. She gives guidance on anything from core ways we should be considering our careers to the impact of technology on the way that recruiting is done, as well as the insights of where her old industry of events is headed to. Beyond the plethora of insights that Jill provides, I admire what she stands for and her ability to communicate in a way that instantly feels like she's your friend, a mentor, and a role model all at once. I hope you enjoy our conversation and get a lot out of it. Hi, Jill. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi, Zoya. I'm honored to be here. I'm so excited to have you, and I have to start this podcast by saying I wish we could just package all of the amazing conversations we always have and had over the years and launch them as the podcast, but we will try to hit the highlights over you know, the next 30 minutes or so. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. <laughs> You've spent the last 16 years of your career at HPN Global, an events venue and site management company. You've held roles from SVP and managing director to VP of sales and VP of meeting services. So really the whole suite of leadership roles. March 2021 rolls around and you make a complete 360 and are now a managing director at Corsica Partners, an executive search firm with a special focus on technology and innovation. So before we dive into all of the questions, take me to the day that the idea of Corsica enters the picture. How do you discover the opportunity? And what are your initial thoughts before you actually think it through and and make the decision? (laughs) Such a great place to start, Zoya, and I'm not surprised. Honestly, I I wasn't thinking about executive search. It came to me so organically. Lucky for me, I have great mentors and friends that were guiding me and suggested that I talk to Dan Vidkus from Corsica Partners just to get a grasp on what I wanted to do in the next chapter of my career. And in our very first call, Dan said, you need to come do what I'm doing. And I thought, well, that's great. I'm really not interested because I've never thought about executive search. Right. But over the course of eight months, he kept 
speaking to me about the opportunity. And once I saw how aligned it was with my own core values and what I wanted to do with my life, I just made the leap. So now I'm like the new kid in the cafeteria. <laughs> well, it's it's so funny because I I was recently mentoring a girl and I was speaking to somebody in my company and she reached out to me and she said, you know, I looked at your resume and I feel like you've done all these different things and I have a computer science degree and now I'm thinking of switching from computer science to product management. Like, is it too late for me? Um, okay, first of all, <laughs> you are in your early 20s. Welcome. Um, and second of all, I mean, looking at you, you you did something and you did it well and you succeeded in it for 16 years. Did you have imposter syndrome or were you, once he explained it to you, you were just like, yeah, I, I could figure that out? Oh, let's be honest. I, you know, I was afraid. It's scary when you've gone from a leader in your industry and in your company you know, really recognized for, for your achievements to something that you've never done before. So initially scary, I will say that, but I think if you champion yourself, which is what I did, and I had to believe that the alignment between what I wanted to do and this company would make the difference. And pretty quickly I saw, I had everything I needed in my toolbox and my skill set to transition over to this new industry. So I think it's never too late to change course in what you're doing. I was actually thinking about, you know, there is no linear path. There mm -hmm. is no wrong decision when you make a choice in your career because you're even if it's the wrong choice, you'll learn and you know where to go next. I completely agree because I, I really believe in this notion of transferable skills and especially in industries like innovation. I, I would say that they're almost more valued than people who have had a linear career, even in what is quote unquote traditionally known as innovation. But I guess thinking for you, you didn't start at a junior level in this new company. You came in as a managing director. So while I see all the amazing things within you, I'm curious, like, what was the appeal for them to bring somebody, you know, on a very senior level with no prior experience or no prior direct experience? I give credit to Dan, and he is really a master when it comes to identifying talent. And he likes people that have been operators in their career. And everything I've done has been in service, in the service industry, and in operations, whether it was starting out at Ritz-Carlton and then being a conference service manager at a resort in Scottsdale to McDonald's, you know, on the, on the owner-operator front into this, you know, next career path, everything I did was founded really in service and in operations. And he saw those skills as transferable. Mm -hmm. He said, I, I, you have everything you need. I just have to teach you how to do search. And if anyone knows me, I'm a natural Nancy Drew. I love, <laughs> love figuring things out and learning and digging in. So really, this is the perfect career for me because I get to search for ideal candidates. And, and it's that Nancy Drew side of me that is excelling. And there are so many layers to it, but one thing I have to think about is this actually gives me finally the opportunity to share my grand thesis on this podcast, which is the anti-imposter syndrome, and I sense you may have it, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, obviously not on the level or the scale that you've done it on, but I have pivoted and switched my career several times, and I remember 
I got my offer at City, and I was so proud of myself. I broke into product management. I broke into a large financial institution, and I go to dinner with all my friends, and I'm like, guys, I'm going to be a VP of product at Citibank. And literally everybody looks around and says, what? Like, not one person was even impressed. Like, no, not nobody thought that that was exciting because they were like, how are you going to do product, which you've never really done? And how are you going to work in financial services, which you've never really done? And my anti-imposter syndrome is like, well, does this seem interesting? Do I feel like it's something I want to explore? In my opinion, I can figure it out. And so I almost have the anti-imposter syndrome, not because I think I'm qualified, but because it gives me the opportunity to get qualified. Curious to see if that was kind of your thought process or if you've seen that in your own career. I think in my own career, I, I push myself towards being uncomfortable mm-hmm. as, a, as a path to growth and learning. And so for me, it really comes down to, I think I can do it. I'm championing myself. Mm-hmm. I, I feel if there's alignment to what I want to do in life, you know, when I look at my core values and there, it's being of service to others. You know, honesty, transparency, curiosity around all things, uh, leading with a grateful heart and integrity. And if I am being of impact for people and and serving people and helping them elevate, well, then I can do it. And so I think that leap of faith for me, when I started telling friends and family and mentors what I was doing, they're all they literally all said, "Yeah, okay." You should have been doing that, you know, 20 years ago. You're the person that always connects everybody. What's really funny is there's a big industry technology player, and I've had a strategic partnership in my last role with them for 15 years, never spoke at the conference. I jump ship and and go to Corsica Partners, and they're like, would you speak on diversity, equity, (laughs) and inclusion? You know, that's what we really want you to speak on, which created this whole trajectory of doing podcasts and sessions and webinars mm-hmm. on DEI, which I'm very passionate about. So really right away, I had validation that I was on the right track. And thinking about the events and, and the meetings, uh, you know, world and industry, it's, it's evolved just in the last two years, but I'm sure people said the same thing five and 10 and 15 years ago. When you kind of started in the industry and towards your last few years there, I guess not accounting for COVID, which we'll dive into separately, what was really the landscape and what was considered innovative? Wow, great question. So when I started in events, there really wasn't innovation it was pretty much Excel spreadsheets. And what's scary is I think in 2021, there are still a lot of companies and planners <laughs> operating on Excel spreadsheets. But it was that, that intersection really around 2010 where technology started to become an impact for how you planned that attendee journey. So it was mm-hmm. pretty rudimentary in the beginning with registration and housing sites, which now if you look, you can map an entire attendee journey, as we call it, through technology and that's mm-hmm. mobile apps and RFID tracking. So you know how long people are going to an, an event or a session or if they even go, how long they stay there, what they're clicking on, what they're looking at. Uh, so really seeing where, where innovation and technology took events. And that, I think, when I took the reins at HPN in the meeting services division, that was what excited me the most is I could see what was coming and really wanted to be at the beginning of it because so many clients of ours 
weren't evolving and didn't have those skills or the tools to, to use the technology. So we became the experts in that space. And it was absolutely incredibly fast-paced and interesting. And to see where it is today, I, I said this on a podcast last year. In January 2020, trying to get a client to adopt to a virtual platform or a hybrid event mm-hmm. was impossible. In March, April 2020, everyone wanted it, everyone needed it, and everyone had to learn at the speed of light to pivot their events into a virtual format. And here we are today, hybrid events are, are around for the long haul. We've just learned how easy it is to touch people all across the globe through technology. And there's been so many new startups and evolved companies and evolved products as a result of this. I think to me, the silver lining of COVID was actually this new industry and new way of working, new way of thinking and new way of connecting. But recently, I actually spoke on a uh, panel hosted by a company called Cultura. They recently went public. This is really their domain and their space. And something that we spoke about was measurement, because a lot of the times in innovation, you don't use those you know, traditional measurement systems or traditional KPIs, because you're looking to understand qualities that are maybe not so obvious, such as sales or number Mm -hmm. of attendees. So we actually spoke about how sometimes with the event space, with the human interaction aspect of it, there's actually not that much value in measuring everything. Mm -hmm. On the kind of landscape of to measure and not to measure, where do you stand when it comes to measuring or not measuring the events life cycle or the attendee life cycle? I think the place not to measure and the hardest place to to get knowledge around is connectivity. And that is not through a, a video or a Slack channel. It's really how people create personal interactions and trust and connection within platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the driving thing right now is how does that happen? What does it look like? I think we have a long way to go and how that will evolve mm-hmm. because this is, you know, you and I are speaking today. I can see you, even though mm-hmm. everyone else can't see us. However, you know, really when you're talking about meetings and events and also beyond that, any kind of Zoom, there's going to be another layer that creates a deeper, more meaningful connection to people as we continue to work globally in a virtual world. When you think about events and the actual people that are showing up at the forefront, a lot of the times that the speakers at conferences, they tend to be, you know, men or white women. And and the Mm -hmm. lack of diversity is, to me, really prohibitive as a lot of those events are meant to serve as thought leadership uh, opportunities. How have you seen that involve in your own career? And why do you think the push for so much more diversity is actually pretty successful across some of those larger thought leadership conferences and events? Oh, it, this is really something I'm passionate about. And, and luckily, because I just did a big conference in August, and we, we focused on this, part of what we spoke about is how do companies bring diversity to the stage? You know, and, and someone at that conference after our, our panel came up and said, you know, I, I don't know where to go with this because my conference and my leadership is stale, pale, and male. Mm. And we don't have diversity within our ranks. However, I do think you can ask for and recruit for diverse speakers because they bring a unique perspective. And sometimes hearing it from a different perspective makes you see things with new, new eyes. 
And so that's what we really spoke about is like, if you look at, at meeting planning in general, probably 74% of meeting planners are women. Mm-hmm. And I think only 8.6% of meeting planners are black. Wow. So, and, and if you look at leadership within that industry, it's one woman per like six men. And it dipped back during COVID. In the trenches are women doing planning, but leadership is primarily male. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of diversity. Now we see that there's huge room for growth. And coming out of that conference, so many people said this should be on the main stage. This should be a topic that is discussed because you're touching people in, in so many ways. When you look at bringing diversity into your workplace and into events, it's good for business. There's so 100%. much out there that shows us diversity helps build better, more successful companies and events. And I also think it goes back to a really fundamental principle, which is when leadership or the C-suite is out of touch of what's Mm -hmm. happening on the ground, then they can't make good strategic decisions. I know that at Chanel, uh, when I was an intern there, they would make the most senior people go and work in the store because ultimately the store is the first line of defense Mm -hmm. and retail may not be considered the most glamorous industry, but ultimately it gave leadership insight on what actually happens when customers walk through the door. I know you mentioned you worked with a variety of different companies. Have you seen models of that or alternate models to really bridge the gap between leadership and what's on the ground in a diverse way or in different ways? I I had an incredible opportunity to work with an organization that is primarily focused on black leadership in the IT sector. Mm -hmm. And we went to bid on this And primarily our team was all what you'd think, white women, meeting planners, and we won the bid. And one of the things the CEO at that time for the organization said is, I I challenge you to look for diversity within your ranks. I'm hiring you and giving you an opportunity to bring diversity to your team and to advocate for this going forward. And I think without her mentorship and leadership, I probably wouldn't have had it pointed out because, you know, everyone else, you know, went on, oh, great, you won the bid, it's fine. She said, no, I challenge you to do more and think about this differently. So really that she started me on my path in 2014 about really hiring for diversity and also encouraging diversity through vendors, suppliers, speakers and and putting this out to our other clients, asking them to consider where they stand on diversity at all levels, not only within their organization, but within their events. So if you haven't understood yet why Jill is now on the executive search side, I urge you to listen to this episode again. (laughs) So then you, you make the switch, right? There's all these problems. You're aware of it. You've experienced it in your own career. And now you are on the other side of that. So starting with a really basic question, when you are trying to recruit in a way that's going to bring the best candidate, the most innovative candidate, the most diverse candidate, where is your place to start? Well, typically my place to start is with the client and really understanding. I I love understanding not only the culture of the company, but the character of the company. What Mm -hmm. do they stand for? What do they believe in? And then drilling down into that job position profile, 
what are those tactical skills they need, but what are also behaviorally are they looking for in a candidate? So I drill down on those. And when I go to do my search, I, I try and look at it with a new lens because when you talk about inclusion and equity, there are people who have had hurdles and barriers to certain things that some people take for granted. It could be a pedigreed education. It could be opportunity. And so how do we look at those candidates and the experience and the skill set they have and bring them to the table as well? Because I think that's really important. Uh, I was listening to Nick Mehta. I don't know if anyone knows. He's the CEO of Gainsight. I just love Nick. And he was on a podcast recently, and I think it was uh, called Across the Lines. And he said, I don't like A players, doesn't like the A player concept. And I, I love that because what it's saying is good people with the right leadership in the right position can do great things. And we shouldn't expect great candidates to be great at everything. Really, it's a culture of recruiting across all lines that drives the best talent. And he's right. I think that there is lots of opportunity for picking the hungry candidates, mm -hmm. right? I, I, I feel like somebody who perhaps maybe has a chip on their shoulder doesn't make them automatically mm -hmm. superior, but I think it brings another dimension that I think mm. is equally, if not more important. So I couldn't agree more with that. But going back to, I guess, the stage of like, understanding what the client is looking for. And even that job description, sometimes the job description in itself has inherent bias that will cut off some of those candidates. So do you ever challenge your clients on how do we make this job description more open? How do we rethink those constraints that a candidate may see? Absolutely. We take a lot of time getting the actual job description from the client and then working with them to remove those biases. We look at the wording. You know, we look at really kind of everything they're asking for to make sure that we're open to the most amount of candidates possible. And I also think that we challenge them to look at their website, look at their own in, you know, their their leadership teams. And, and to kind of have a keen eye towards what do they want to build in? What are they missing? What else could they bring to those teams that they might not have thought of before? I feel like if somebody had just brought me my job description at City, I would have said I'm actually not qualified, even though ultimately I ended up applying. But somebody really encouraged me and told me that I could do great in the role. You being on the executive search side, do you sometimes see a job description and a candidate who really doesn't match up to most or even half of the qualifications and see something in them that they don't see? How do you approach that and, and have you experienced that? I've already experienced that even in the short time I've been doing this. In the search I'm in right now, I'm really interested in a diverse set of skills And it's hard to find a candidate that has every one of the skills and experiences needed. So when I go back and look at their background, their experience, where they've been, what they've done, and then we have those conversations, I really try and highlight what those things are that make them the right person to learn that, or they have some key experience in their background That is, it relates to what they're going to be doing. And, and so there's a little bit of coaching on my end, explaining that to the candidate, because they'll say, well, I haven't managed a huge P&L. Well, maybe you haven't, but you have a background in finance, or you did, you worked for a bank at some portion, or you managed these budgets, or you had 34 different offices that you managed. 
I think you can figure out how to manage a P&L. And I remember having this conversation when I first managed a P&L, I had never done it before. Someone believed I could do it and mm-hmm. gave it to me with guidance and training. So if you think someone is smart enough to figure it out, give them the opportunity and then give them the tools they need and the training and the guidance to be successful at it. So you can pretty much tell when people are talking about their financial acumen or the chops they have in terms of, let's say, a P&L, you can figure out if they can get it done. Right. I, I completely agree. It really is about the belief that somebody else sometimes places in you. On the flip side of that, what are the most common downfalls or mistakes that women make when they are being interviewed or in the recruiting process? And what are the best tips that you have for women to be able to maybe alleviate some of those things that they're not even conscious about? This goes back to what I said in the beginning. Be a champion and an advocate for yourself. Do not sell yourself short. I often see as women are in going towards aspirational roles, they may cut themselves short on what they can really do. And I think if you really know who you are, what you stand for, what you believe in, and what you want to do in your career, you can advocate. And if you're a really great salesperson, you can talk someone into hiring you. So don't mm-hmm. sell yourself short. And I also think be be really authentic. And, and I think that goes a long way in this marketplace. Yes, you want to be polished and prepared, but be real. I've seen candidates ruled out because they're too rigid or too stiff in the interview process. There's, I think as women, sometimes we're so worried about the right answer. And I really believe you don't have to know all of the answers to be relevant. So be authentic to who you are and let that shine through. You also really specialize in the fields of technology and innovation, even though you do broader recruiting. So as far as these two industries go, have you seen any traits that are maybe the most marketable or the most valued by employers across the board? Well, a couple things. Uh, I think you mentioned it, that happy, hungry, uh, humble with horsepower and smart methodology and belief. I think being adaptable and having this innate curiosity is really important. And I think that's, that's something in tech that you're always looking for. Yeah, we can say it's that pedigreed background or all these experiences, But I've also seen a lot of tech companies now gravitate towards new talent, whether it's just coming out of college or transitioning into tech, and really coaching them and training them from the beginning so then they're lifelong employees. And and I think that's something you'll see going forward as well. And if you could recommend to, you know, whether that's somebody experienced or not, like, hey, take a course on this or Mm -hmm. brush up on this, something that may be more of a hard skill, is there anything that you think would be most valuable in this field? Well, something I was just working on earlier today, Zoom has a a course on visual presentation, and it's really Mm. important as if you're interviewing, I think it's important to go back and, and look at that course and brush up on how to give the best virtual presentation of yourself. We do a lot of prep work with a candidate before they do that initial Zoom interview, because typically right now they are on, on Zoom or another platform right. to start. 
So what we say is go look at this, you know, look at your surroundings. And if you don't have a good backdrop, well, then we'll send you one and, and know mm-hmm. how be, and practice before you go in, into a Zoom or into an interview, what you look like, how you present. So I think those are the things I, LinkedIn has so many great learning courses, but I tell every candidate, if you're not comfortable or confident presenting and interviewing on a virtual format, go watch those courses and learn. Absolutely. I think it makes like all the difference in the world. And you touched on LinkedIn, which is a platform that I always attribute so much of my success and opportunities to. It gave me a chance to present myself as a thought leader. And even a lot of the work I do on this podcast is really driven by LinkedIn. But I think on the other side of this, I'm curious about your own interactions and experience with technology. Now trying to figure out and find the most interesting candidate. I'm sure that you are actually in some ways battling some of the algorithms of this technology. So curious to hear about that. That's why it's good that I'm a Nancy Drew in my, in my (laughs) field, because there are a couple different platforms we use actually quite a few. Uh, I think AI powered tools and platforms are really great for those like individual contributor roles perhaps some white-collar professional roles like sales, marketing, uh, influencers, perhaps. However, when it comes to executive roles, we have to get crafty and creative how we find them and how we search. And so sometimes I think we are hindered. I I did this experiment recently on LinkedIn, as a matter of fact, by changing my, my search string. It's called Boolean and changing how I was searching, realizing I kept getting the same candidates over and over again. So I was like, let me go back and go back to Google and try this. Then I'll go back into LinkedIn based on what I find within Google. And it did shift it. But I think six, seven, eight times, no matter what words I was plugging in, I was getting the same candidates based on their algorithm. So you have to get really creative in how you go out and search for for new, new, new talent every time. And frankly, I think that that's a big strength that you bring to the table. You're so conscious of these things and you're conscious of diversity and diversity of thought, diversity of gender, race, all of the above, so that it enables you to think and get creative with these platforms because truly their algorithm doesn't typically account for diversity, which I think is something that they definitely need to work on. (laughs) You're so right. You know how many times I do a search and it's a majority of white men. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I really have to get creative to find not only women, but diversity. I really want diverse candidates and diverse can be their background. It can be their ethnicity, their cultures, it can be anything. And so mm-hmm. I have to work really hard <laughs> to make sure I can find them. Yeah. And to me, a big takeaway here is it's actually all of our jobs, whether like you said, it's the vendors or the interns or the executives of our companies. It's ultimately everyone's job to either refer or to hire or to think through the diversity because I I genuinely do believe it's everyone's job. Before I let you go, I'll ask you the quintessential innovation question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now. I love this. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I see (laughs) myself very busy in one month and in the next year, uh, just based on what's going on in recruiting. I I think there are 
way more roles than there are candidates right now. I hope I'm still here doing this in 10 years. I find it very inspiring. As for our industry, I just touched on it. I do think there will be in the next 10 years, just extensive use of those AI powered tools to fill Mm -hmm. those individual contributor roles. Um, I'm going to go on a limb here and say that uh, going forward, I think you'll see more mandatory like cognitive and behavioral assessments for, uh, you know, professional roles. So today it's mainly C-suite because it's just a time and a cost. I think those price points over the next 10 years will come down and companies will put a premium on hiring right versus hiring fast. Hmm. I also think you're going to see a dramatic increase in diversity. Uh, I think we'll shift to multicultural international team members. You could literally have a team of 12 people based, you know, in London or with four different continents represented with proliferation of technology, work sharing platforms, you know, all, all of the above. So I think there's going to be a global village approach. And I think that's really important. Now, as for recruiting itself in executive cert, this, this is bold. I think the culture of recruiting in the next 10 years, uh, there won't be recruiting departments. There will be recruiting cultures. And that's based in best practices, in perhaps platforms, training, awareness, as we've been speaking about, commitment. Everyone will understand they have a role in the recruiting and retaining of talent. Because the days are gone where you can delegate this to just a single department to figure out. It will be... right the whole company having a culture of recruitment. And already the most successful companies I see are invested in that. So, so many amazing insights on that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jill, opening up the veil on an industry or or two industries that sometimes feel like really hidden away from the regular consumer. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Zoya. Great to speak with you. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.